Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. When John Lahr agreed to talk to me about his new biography of Arthur Miller, I was thrilled. I'd read him religiously as the theatre critic of The New Yorker and love his long profiles of actors. He has the most impeccable pedigree as the biographer of Sinatra, Coward, Tennessee Williams, Joe Orton and of his father, the comedian Bert Lahr, best known for playing the cowardly lion in the film of The Wizard of Oz alongside Judy Garland. He's also written about Barry Humphreys, of whom he was a big fan. As for Miller, well, he's a towering figure of American theatre, thanks to plays like Death of a Salesman, A View from the Bridge, The Price, All My Sons, After the Fall and The Crucible. Then there's his best-selling memoir, Time Bends, and his sensational second and disastrous marriage to Marilyn Monroe, and the script he wrote for her, The Misfits, not to mention his testimony in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, which cost him his friendship with director Elia Kazan, with whom he had worked so closely in his early years. So much ground to cover. And La has a meandering manner that includes a lot of fascinating asides and digressions. So, I've edited our conversation into two parts. In part one, you will hear about Miller's family, especially his brother Kermit. Yes, really, Kermit, and his father Isidore. You'll hear La use a Yiddish word to describe his own father as a tumla, which basically means an entertainer. And unfortunately, you may also hear the intermittent background noise of a chainsaw. John La, welcome to Life Sentences. Delighted to be here. You've written biographies of Tennessee Williams, Frank Sinatra, Noel Coward, Joe Orton and Barry Humphreys. So do you apply the same process, the same methodology to each subject or is each one different in approach? Well, I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. The first biography I wrote, you didn't mention. Which oh. we, no, but it's important. Uh, I wrote a biography of my father. I was going to ask you about that separately. Bert Lahr. And one of the things I discovered when I went started, because I started when I was 21, was that my father had a closet full, after a 50, 60-year career, had a closet full of great reviews. And when I read them, I realized, and, and I was really young, that none of them came remotely close to capturing the essence of this person I'd lived with for 21 years. I mean, not remotely close. And it, it struck me that since I wanted to be a writer, and this was clearly some a, a book that was going to be was potentially publishable if I could write a good sentence, was that that this was an area of popular culture, popular history, which needed to be reported better. And my, my desire was to get closer to the person and the process. I was interested in, because of my father, what was inside him that he wanted to express, get out of him, the, turn his inside out. And I had the blessing of a, I consider, a genius performer talking to me. And fortunately, because these low comedians were considered low and therefore not properly a, a subject of a literary discussion at the time, these the 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 primary source material was him. And what that led me to do subsequently was as much as possible 
to stay close to the primary source because what you get beyond that is anecdotage. I mean, in a sense, we all are making up our own story and we all, and our stories of, even of what happens today vary what we perceive, how we feel about it, what we remember. So in, in writing biography, where you can, I like to, to stick uh, to the first person or people who have had and left a record of a real engagement with the other person. I mean, in the case of Tennessee Williams, who was a extraordinarily brilliant, probably the greatest letter writer of all the playwrights, he had a wonderful and eloquent correspondence with uh, Ilya Kazan. That exists. The memory that the actors had, that anybody was around, that their friends or hangers-on had, there sometimes you get a good story, but it's not essential. You're not getting at the essence of the person. These artists care more about their work than their life. If you're a careful reader, you can see in, and if you bring those sentences, like say the sentence of William and the sentence of Kazan, close together, and not with a lot of lit crit palaver between them, if you actually bring the sentences together, not only do you get a dialogue, but the reader subliminally gets a sense of their being. Uh, a pulse comes through. I mean, uh, Kazan's, Kazan's rhythm is completely different than Williams. Williams is hysteric, and Kazan isn't. And that, you get that. That comes through. And it, it binds, it brings them, it's rather like a, a brass rubbing. It brings them out. It, you, it, it, it creates a stronger outline and impression in the reader's mind. You didn't have the luxury of that with Arthur Miller, did you? Uh, yes and no, because I knew Miller briefly. I, I, I met Miller first at the, bed, at the deathbed of Harold Clerman, the critic and director, who directed Miller and who was my mentor. Uh, and I then met him again when I was writing a profile in The New Yorker for the 50th anniversary of Death of a Salesman. And I went to his house in Roxbury, and he took me and his wife, Inga, who had never seen this, to the cabin, which I write about in the Arthur Miller book, that he built to write Death of a Salesman in. He, took, he built the cabin, put the roof on, and this is the amazing thing. His tools were in the corner of the cabin. He, he finished it, and when he finished it, he sat down, and he wrote the first act of Death of a Salesman in eight hours. It was like a brainstorm. And it took another month to finish the play. But I got to know him a, a bit, so I, got, I understood his, his appeal because he was a great storyteller, a kind of tumbler, great, very big, sort of heroic-looking uh, guy. But also... A man of, as you would be, if you were sort of consistent, he's a household god in America for many, many decades. Uh, a quite a uh, substantial sense of himself, which you get, you always get. You have to have uh, these great characters. What I had with, in, in, in Miller's case is I had, or I could collect 
things that he had written to people who were important to him. So I had, it came to this idea of first person. I had the correspondence of Ilya Kazan. I had the mm -hmm. correspondence of a few letters from his mother. In Miller's own prolix autobiography, which is nonetheless substantial, and the best thing he actually wrote in the 1980s, he sort of he he sort of overwrites it, but there are clues in there of a psychological nature which open things up for me because what I'm always looking for, as I said, is a is is about process how these things come to, come into being. Now, of course, the, there's no the, the, that's one of the great. You're never going to have an answer to that question. You're going to get closer to it. It's like a brass rubbing. You you're never going to pin the tail on the donkey, but the the nonetheless, for some extraordinary reason, people the biographers I think don't want to risk interpretation. They don't want to risk psych for fear of I think of psychobabble, but actually. That's where, in the creation of, uh, one of the things that I've noticed, it's true of Coward, it's true of Williams and Miller, was that they were co-productions. They, they just didn't evolve out of themselves, which is the usual mythology. They are created by a sort of psychological environment, a, 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 lot, of, a lot of maternal greatness whispering. A lot of, you know, Miller was the uh, undisputed darling of his family, and Williams was the cosseted son. And uh, it doesn't work the same way with comedians, I have to say, but the same with Coward in many ways. Uh, and so when you follow those tracks, you find, you, if you ask different questions, you get different answers. And that's my game. Kermit was the academic star of the family. Arthur was as close to a dunce as it's possible to, to be. He, he couldn't, not only was he a bad student, at the time of the Depression, he couldn't get into a college. No college would take him. And in his high school yearbook, which of course, I always go to that. In America, they have these yearbooks. And there's a photo and your school activities and your aspirations or things like that. And he put as his school, the school he was applying to, Stanford University, well, which is the, one of the prime, uh, prime universities in America. He couldn't have got to Stanford on a trolley car. I mean, he, he, he was terrible. And so the, Kermit was, the, was handsome. He was tall. He was an athlete. He was idealistic, and he was a communist from a very early age. So he had a sense of the world, and he, and more importantly, from the history of the family, he when when Arthur he was at NYU, uh, he was in college, and he was the firstborn, and Arthur was who was born in 1915 was born between this sort of heralded older brother. And a younger sister who came along in 1920, I think. So he was in a in a strange position, and to a certain extent, 
uh, if you start to parse this out, from his own account, he was dispossessed within the family. So that my, my interest was in finding out what that family was like. And that came down to the nephew, Ross. Now, Ross is, you, you, when you're writing a biography, you have to somehow intuitively weigh the credibility of your observers. Because, and now Ross's credentials are extraordinary. He, he was a professor of English at uni, a number of universities. He was the editor uh, of the three-volume Library of America of volumes on Philip Roth. So his his perceptions and his informed opinion are extremely credible. And he was very aware of the family, Arthur's family, which, who, which is very mysterious in some ways, and also very aware of his own father's struggle to survive his own inheritance of being a traumatized war hero and the menda there's no other word for it the mendaciousness of Arthur's public image versus actually who he was now the, the thing about writers and I include myself in this we go out there and the people who meet us generally meet us in our polished perfect selves that authoritative quality that if you you know, let's say you, William's book did extremely well in the world. People who read that book read an authority. That authority took 12 years to make. That is a, that is a, that, and to polish it and to get it to the place where we want, where we, where we want it. My dad, who was, as you know, a, a big American theater star, always used to talk about looking good. You went, out to, you went out in the world and you presented your best self. And in a sense, all writers do that. That, they, uh, that best self is, in, in a sense, they're, in every way their best self is given to their work. They, 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 there's a, and Miller actually mentions this. He was aware of it because he was psychoanalyzed. There is a, a really strong erotic connection to the work. The work is the mistress, and there's no question about that, or the first love in, in, in some instances. And you can call it narcissistic, which is, is, virtually means nothing, but it is, that's the obsession. And Miller, once he found, what he, he said a very interesting thing in one of his letters. He said he didn't fear death, he feared insignificance. And that's also fed that impulse is doesn't come out of the ether. That's built into how he was bred and the particular nature of his family. Can I, if you want, I can spell that out for you a bit because it's interesting. But but this is this is what comes from my conversations with Ross. So that is again, it's as close to primary as I can get. But Ross did give me one letter, and later I can read part of it to you if you're interested, one letter that Miller wrote, which completely, in one four-page letter to his parents, which was circulated to his brother and sister, about why he was marrying Marilyn, telling them he was going to marry Marilyn, and also recapping the absolute 
toxic nature of his first marriage. And that was, you, you, you have to have a certain amount of luck in biography. And that was like huge because here he was in his own unliterary voice talking about the thing that meant most to him in his life and revealing in the process the complete aridity of his emotional life in his, in, in his first marriage, which is extraordinary. But when you put that together with what he was writing at the time, you see that the crucible is really as much about his failed marriage and attempts to make amends as it is about hysteria and right-wing conspiracy. And All My Sons, which is about war profiteering, is also about some actual betrayal of his own family with, the, with their children. There is this synergy between the, the stories Miller is telling and the desire to take the, these buried secrets, to bring them out, to push them out there. Kazan said an interesting thing. He said, you know, Arthur can only write, he doesn't make up stories. He can only write about what he's experienced. But so much of these, the, the, the guilt and is, is in him, in his psyche, in his family. Nobody could say what they felt. The tragedy of Kermit is central to the way that Arthur Miller writes relationships between brothers. I mean, it's difficult to see those two things as separate. But before we go back to the other person in the family, I'd like you to talk about briefly, and that's Arthur's father. Can you just tell me why the subtitle of your book is American Witness. I was just struck by the fact that you used that term to describe Arthur Miller at one stage at the height of his popularity. You describe him just then as a household god. What makes him an American witness? Well, you know, I, I having written, I have to go around the house here to explain this. Having written about Williams is the poet of individualism. He, his story is essentially the story of America that begins with brilliance and ends in barbarity. And Miller has, uh, when I was writing the, the, Mill, uh, the uh, Williams book, I had an intuition and I had a friend who was professor of history at Stanford who didn't understand the question at all I was trying to ask him. So I called up Miller and I said, Arthur, did the sense of self change after the war? And Arthur said, yes, absolutely. I mean, because in the war effort, and indeed because through the Depression, there was more a sense of community, especially during the war, there was a sense of community and a sense of sacrifice to a, a greater end. The minute the war was over, and for the next 10 years, America experienced the great, the, 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 the per capita income of Americans tripled. It was the greatest rise in wealth in the history of Western civilization. And what that did was, now that they were released from the Depression and released from war, Americans, Americans pursued their happiness, as was the, as was the guarantee. of the, And so the, 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 the ethos became, and this is what Williams personified, the pursuit of desire. 
the pursuit of satisfaction and happiness. That's not what Arthur was writing about. Arthur was interested in the relationship of the individual to the society and essentially how capitalism enforces a sort of internal dynamic, primarily invidious comparison, which Willie Loman personifies, the, the terrible hell of comparing yourself to others and the feeling of envy and so the, what I find uh, fascinating in, in Miller's work, who compared to Williams as a subject, uh, you know, Arthur, as Norman Mailer said, had the synapses of a banker. I mean, it, he, he was conservative. He was perfectly presentable, funny. Williams was completely out of control. He was a sort of car crash waiting to happen. And so from a writing point of view, that unboundaried person is, is, you know, you just sort of pick up every, everything he does is crazy, nuts, and hilarious or terrible. And so you have drama every minute. And so that's fun to write about. With Miller, who's, in his, who's, a, who's a solid sender, but he's just in there working and grafting and looking and, uh, you know, literally cultivating his, his acreage behind uh, his Roxbury house. It's just, he's more apparently normal. So I, it took me a while to sort of understand how deep his analysis of America goes, because what it's hitting is the very, very, in, in, well, I want to use the word toxic, let's use the word toxic, veins of denial. I just want to go back to something very briefly, since you've mentioned Tennessee Williams several times and they were contemporaries. How did they regard each other professionally? Were they rivals? Were they jealous of each other's success? Did they attend each other's plays? Were there, was there any kind of sniping or bitchiness between uh, no, them? No, uh, there, there, there wasn't. Williams went to All My Sons twice when it came on. And after seeing, was very impressed with the play and with Kazan's direction and sent him a streetcar. And conversely, Miller, having seen Glass Menagerie and looking for a way to essentially get beyond naturalism, found in Williams's style and the structure of that play a way of, inc of making the internal life of the character and the ex- Eternal reality, marrying them in a stage picture. I mean, originally, the original title of Death of a Salesman was The Inside of His Head. Which I think is a terrible title. Oh, it is, but they, you know, it is. Uh... Before we stray too far from my path, I do want to ask you about Isidore, Arthur and Kermit's father. One of the problems with most biography, according to, I mean, I try to write biographies, the biographies that I like to read. And one of the problems with Miller's biographies is the first biography is two volumes. Each volume is a thousand pages. And I have to say, yes, you're, I can see your face and your jaw is dropping. You know, you want to throw it against the wall because every bit of the biographer's learning is in it. And you can't, it's like trying to paddle through lily pads. You can't do it. It's just no fun. And it's not only no fun, it doesn't get at the drama, the pulse of the person, which is what you're trying to capture. And they don't, they, they, they tend to, 
They don't. They they. What I'm what I'm what I'm trying to do is ask different questions to get different answers, and the clue to Arthur in many ways is the family, the the nexus of the family, and I have to tell you a little bit about the father because the father is really interesting. And I wouldn't have known this if Ross hadn't have told me the family story. And part of my luck is because of The New Yorker, people understand that I've written a certain number of books. They know what to expect and they know I'm going to be honorable to the story. Well, the story is that when the Miller family came from Poland to America, Isidore was thought to be backward. So they left him in Poland because they didn't want to be, come all that way and be stopped at immigration. But the person they left him with died. And so essentially, they had to send Isidore on his own with a sign around his neck saying the name of the ship. And so he, he went from Poland to New York. That's a three-week journey alone. When he got to New York, he, he more or less went from the immigration office to Stanton Street in the Lower East Side and went into the garment district and worked in the garment district. His family made clothes. That was the family business. Now, Isidore grew up to be a very genial, very charismatic, tall man and was immediately successful. I mean, he became extremely successful. And when he came, he, at about the age of 32, he just, he had I mean, his company, this is interesting. Miller, when in almost all interviews, sort of just says, yeah, my father was in the garment trade. He doesn't say, which he said, to, which he explained to the House on american Activities Committee, that his father had one of the two or three biggest clothing manufacturers in America. He was extremely rich. He, ha he employed about 800 people. When a man who was a sponger, which is a don't ask me what it is, but it's a it's a something that you know in the garment district. A man called William Fox asked him for a fifty thousand dollar loan, which is the equivalent of over a million dollars now, to go into the film business. He told he 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 shined him on. He said no because he didn't like spongers; they were dishonest. Had he given him the fifty thousand, he would have been one of the owners of Twentieth Century Fox. <laughs> And so, and so that, and Miller would have grown up as a sort of entitled son of a mogul, which became part of the family lament when things went south for the family. Anyway, staying with this, staying with this, when he's 32, he decides to get married. And he marries a 17-year-old magna cum laude, very attractive young woman who reads, writes, plays the piano, can paint, sings, has has cultural aspirations, right? And she, it's really a marriage, she subsequently, and Arthur writes about this again and again, the families went into a room, they came out, she was going to get married. She, she said, I'm, I was traded like a cow. Yeah, but that, the point is she landed in, uh, and Arthur was raised in a, a very grand apartment at the uh, looking south, in it was in Harlem, looking over Central Park. They had maids, they had a knobby piano, they had lovely mahogany furniture. He had a chauffeur which drove him to work. They had a summer cottage. 
And that was all that she inherited. Now, the, the big kicker to that story is that Isidore could not read or write, uh, which is mind-boggling. He did all that. And when that knowledge was completely internalized by Augusta, the wife, there, they, and this is where the repression and the masquerade of family comes into it. Although they, there was great comfort, as you can hear, they had no they they had no currency of exchange. He was interested in business, and she was interested in everything else. They couldn't talk about anything, and there was inevitably a certain contempt for his ignorance. He had no opinions. He had no thoughts. He wasn't curious. He was nice. He was affable. And in the context of his working world, he was powerful and charismatic. And the point is that Arthur idealized him. Idealized him to the extent that if he, and this, now we're getting into the area where it explains Arthur Arthur's inability to learn or, you know, considering what he was in high school and what he became, he, he the 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 block to learning was the father. He didn't want to if he if he if he read and learned, he would outpace the father that he idealized. So he was so it, it's very very interesting what happened because Arthur said in his autobiography he says that he really from about the age of six he felt separate from the family. He occupied his own psychological space. And there are clues to his unhappiness. And he was restless. He was a sleepwalker. He, con he says he contemplated running away about three times a month. That's a quote. He'd ride his bike around Harlem. Harlem, by, by the way, then, had 200,000 Jews. Uh, one, about 15% of the, all of the Jews, immigrant Jews in America, lived in Harlem at that time, about 14 million, all told. You mentioned before that the family's fate went south. So obviously that's a referral to the stock market crash. So what happened to Isidore when the stock market crashed, Good which question. was around the time that Arthur was between, let's say, the ages of 12 and 14, is when the family's fate changes? Correct. And well interjected. Because when the family lost their money, they didn't this is this is a very interesting area. This is where the, the a collision of all sorts of conflicting impulses happens. the The father lost on the stock market. He was one of the two percent that had money in the stock market. Not many people did in America. And so he lost he lost the business, and the family had to retreat to Brooklyn. They had to sell up. They went to Brooklyn and they and all all the dreams of uh, all the wealth that they'd had all the sense of meaning and purpose was completely wiped out and arthur was faced and this is when his sort of political notions about capitalism started to form he there was no leadership in the country but there was also no leadership at home because isidore was incapable of conceptualizing or doing much. He would sleep a lot. There was, uh, so, you know, the Freud's definition of trauma is essentially helplessness. 
there was just a sense of helplessness and and confusion and the impulse of the family was divided the push of the parents was for them both Arthur and Kermit to get into the family business and remake this man and remake the business but and this appealed more to Kermit, who was an idealist and romantic and to a certain extent wanted to get his father back on his feet. And Arthur, Arthur was more, is, was more torn. There was certainly the pressure on him. But he began, this is when he was trying to get into college and not succeeding. And then because University of Michigan offered uh, prizes for literary things, he, th he sort of think he, he sort of gravitated to that school. And when he was in his sophomore year, he wrote a play in the Easter break called No Villains, which won a prize, which earned him enough money to pay for his tuition. And that prize created a problem between the brothers because prior to going to university, they'd made a deal and this is where the guilt starts to come in. The deal was that Arthur would, the, the brother would leave, Kermit would leave college and work with the father. And then Arthur, and then Arthur would, after his freshman year, would come and work with the father. And Kermit would go back and finish his sophomore year. And they would spell each other back and forth. And that way, they'd both get educated. But after Arthur won the prize, Kermit said, okay. You're, you know, you want to do this. You, you think you want to be a playwright. You go ahead. I'll, finish, I'll take, I'll be with Dad. And so what, what evolved out of that Welshing on the deal? Was it Welshing? Sort of was, sort of wasn't. And this, this, this is what I'm about to say feeds into the theme of all my sons. They, Kermit worked with his father until the war, but it, 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 de it, it destined, Kermit to a life of kind of servitude, of being a yeah of being a kind of indentured servant, and the premise was that the the parents had essentially been wiped out, but the reality was what they learned was the parents actually had some money that Kermit didn't have to sacrifice himself, you know. And so that the parents had on some level betrayed the children in order to keep the notion of the family together. Now, in, in the price, this issue comes up. I mean, it's all, the price is extraordinarily autobiographical. And this is, you know, this is where theater and, you know, in, when Arthur, I, I didn't really finish my thought about when Arthur was six and seven, one of the things that happened when you see his fictionalizing mind starting to take form, he had, he, in order to preserve his parents as a child, he had to find a way of denying the anger and the confusion of the masquerade of their family and the, 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 the sort of violent innocence of the mother trying to be loving and kind to the, to the father. But sussing the contempt she had for him. And so he, he lived on two different planes, actual reality and a metaphoric one. He split them off and he had fictional characters. They, his parents were both loving and he would spin, the, uh, spin them into other characters uh, in his mind as well. So 
What the playwriting ultimately did was allow Arthur to impersonate all the conflicts and admit them, which he had to hide otherwise. The thing that got Kermit, this is what, what is also tragic, uh, the thing that got Kermit out of the family was he went to war and he mm. became a war hero. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, uh, wounded, left the hospital to go back to fight, was get, won a Purple Heart, came back and had a series of, of breakdowns. And this is a, also a, a point of contention within the family because Arthur was, I think, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, big guy. And the, 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 the story is that Arthur didn't go to war because he, of a football injury. And that's, that injury is disputed. Disputed. Such a loaded word, and so crucial to an understanding of the labyrinth that is biography. La is relying heavily there on Miller's nephew Ross's version of events in a precious unpublished memoir that is one of his primary sources. In the next part of our conversation, we're going to take a vaulting leap forward to discuss Miller's disastrous marriage to Marilyn Monroe. This episode of Life Sentences was funded by a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to acknowledge their generous support. Production is by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. If you like Life Sentences, please subscribe or leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. It all helps. <laughs>